0: Welcome to Keep Calm and Cook On. I'm your host, Julia Tertian. Each episode of Keep Calm and Cook On features a meaningful interview and answers to listeners' questions about cooking. Thank you to Great Jones for making this episode possible. Great Jones makes beautiful, thoughtfully designed cookware. To find out more about Great Jones, head over to greatjonesgoods.com. For $25 off of any purchase on GreatJonesGoods.com, use the code POTCAST. That's P O T C A S T. Before I tell you about Elizar Sontag, my guest today, a quick thank you to everyone who has been listening to the show, spreading the word about it, and of course, everyone who has been a guest on the show. It really does take a village. I found out last week that Keep Calm and Cook On has been nominated for an IACP award. IACP stands for the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And while it's wonderful to be recognized by an industry organization, the nomination gave me a chance to reflect on why I started the show. I started it to have and to share meaningful conversations. It's as simple as that. So thank you to everyone who's talked to me and everyone who has listened. It really means a lot. Okay, today's guest is Elazar Sontag, the Oakland-raised and Brooklyn-based editor and writer. We recorded this interview a couple of months ago, but in the interim, Elazar has turned 21 and has also become an editor at Serious Eats. He also has a very active freelance career, writing for everyone from The Washington Post to Grub Street, Vice, and more. He's also a cookbook author and a home cook, and we talked about both of those things, as well as anxiety, Guy Fieri, and more. I really hope you enjoy the show.
1: Will you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's Elazar Sontag. Um, I'm a home cook and a food writer and a cookbook author. A consumer of lots of food all over New York City, and I guess that's about it yeah. right now. You are it's always all kind things. of developing, evolving, changing, becoming. You know? Becoming. Like Michelle Obama, <laughs> yeah, and <Via> Michelle, <laughs> just becoming.
0: Can you tell me what you did to prepare for this podcast?
1: Did you wash your face? I washed my face. <laughs> Which I, I did. So I have funny. this weird thing where I feel like people can hear if it's if I'm clean. Yeah, I get <laughs> So I prepared.
0: I feel like in um, in my cookbooks, it's very important to me that all the food in the photographs is seasoned, mm. and I always feel like no one can see that, but I feel like it comes through, so yeah. it sort of reminds me of that. What
1: is that like? Like, that process of actually cooking? I always wonder about this. Oh,
0: that's a whole other podcast.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you eat it?
0: <laughs> yeah, everything. Yeah. I pride myself that on my cookbook shoots, we don't get, like, delivery or takeout or get food from somewhere else. Like, we eat, mm, eat everything. It all gets eaten. Yeah. Um, I saw you just try to switch the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that's that. I'm like,
1: okay. I'm always the interviewer. Are you? How I'm do you I'm very comfortable with that. I feel already like I can understand a tiny bit some of the, like, twitches and responses that people sometimes have when uh-huh. I start asking them yeah. questions because it's a little anxiety provoking. What's
0: your, because you interview so many people. Yeah. What, how do you start them? What's your I, first question?
1: I usually, I mean, I try to always interview people over food. Um, because like while you're having a like meal. while we're eating, okay. um, because since I'm, you know, transcribing and I don't have to use the audio, like yeah. the smacking and the gross yeah. eating sounds don't matter. Yeah. And it relaxes me since uh-huh. I'm a really anxious person. So it's kind of self-serving in that respect. Um, and then I usually just start in the present. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't like to go back too quickly and ask about people, you know, childhood uh-huh. or. I don't like to, you know, deep dive too quickly. Immediately. immediately. So I'll just ask people, you know, very similar things, you know, what what they've been up to, if they're traveling, like what that's been like, and if they've just come out with a cookbook, like what that experience Uh has been of, you know, coming into such a new chapter of life. Sure. Can I do (laughs) the opposite and (laughs) start from the beginning a (laughs) little bit with you? You're from Oakland. I'm from Oakland.
0: I want to talk about cooking camp. Yeah. Can you tell people about cooking camp?
1: Yeah. It was it called Cooking Camp? It was called Cooking Camp. Yeah. The camp was called is called Cook. Cook. All caps okay. with an exclamation mark. Um And you attended and it? I attended it. From I s- age what to what? From age I think I went to my first cooking camp class when I was like eight or nine. Okay. Um and it was it was really a revelation for me because I was a very very anxious kid I didn't have a lot of friends um I didn't really know how to interact with the world and you know my parents worked so they were always trying to send me off to something during Mm -hmm. the summer um but for years and years it like it really didn't work I would call them and I would have to come home and Mm. I would just be you know in tears and freaking out and it just was too much anxiety to kind of be out in the world like that for me I don't know why it just I couldn't really cope. Um, And then I walked into this huge industrial kitchen um, where they actually filmed the first season of Top Chef. So it's like a very... Fun fact. Yeah, fun fact. (laughs) A huge, shiny place. And I just remember immediately feeling so comfortable and at ease in a way that I really just didn't interact with the world.
0: Was that the space or the people or the food or everything?
1: I think it was a little bit of everything. I mean, I'd always been interested in cooking, but it it felt really special right away that I could be somewhere creating something like that mm-hmm. and that it was really mine and that mm-hmm. I didn't, it didn't necessarily have to be a social space. So it didn't kind of bring up that fear in me because yeah. it was really about learning something. And so I went to that camp, I fell in love and I went there every summer.
0: So it was the summer. It was a summer Monday camp. through Friday? Monday through Friday. Like what time? From Nine like, to five, from or? like, I want all the details. I think
1: it was, like, nine to something like, yeah, four or five. Okay. And we cooked basically all day.
0: Were you, like, were your hands kind of in the pot, in, so to in speak? In the pot. Like, you weren't watching Knives, someone cook. Spoons, like, you were
1: given the sort of tools and skills to actually be making. Everything. These. Yeah, we yeah. were pulling, like, you know, by the time I was, you know, tall enough to reach the counter, we were, like pulling hot pans off the yeah. stove and flambéing and chopping and dicing. And so it was the whole thing yeah. that made me feel really in control of my surroundings. Did you feel empowered? I did. Yeah. I did. I just felt like it was something I felt good at. I uh-huh. wasn't good at school. And I had, I could barely read at that point. So <laughs> I really, really had a ton of learning um, disabilities. I think we call them differences now, but it felt like a disability. Yeah. Um, And so to be in a space like that and to really understand it, that like salt was fundamental or, you know, that these Uh things needed to be peppered, like kinds of skills that felt so important and that I had such a grasp on, just I hadn't had that experience anywhere else. Yeah. Um, And so... Did that change
0: your experience during the school year to like go from your summer feeling so kind of in
1: control? Did you, Hmm. did that you know, carry with you? Did it change my time at school? I think it gave me something to look forward to when I was really, really struggling, Um, which is something that lasted all through high school and, you know, college, you know, where I am now. Um, is not that school ever exactly got easier for me. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'll ever be an academic. Mm -hmm. But knowing that I can always move into sort of like the domain of food and cooking and connecting with people Mm -hmm. through food. It gives me just a kind of confidence, but also just comfort and stability Mm -hmm. that I still don't really have Mm -hmm. other places. Um, Even in my writing, I still Mm -hmm. feel uneasy. And so, you know, of course it's been now 12 or 13 years since I first did that camp, but it really did totally change how I, Interact with the world,
0: and and when did you stop going?
1: Well, I stopped being, I think I stopped being like a camper um, when I was like fourteen or fifteen. But then I kind of became an instructor. Mm -hmm. So I moved. I really, really wanted to stay. I had I'd been there every summer forever. um, It felt like. And so when I kind of aged out of that last program, I was really just trying to find a way to kind of stick around. So I became sort of like the lead intern. I don't even know what the title was, but I was just kind of then there in a little bit more of a administrative role. Uh And that was really special too, because then I was meeting kids who reminded me of me. Yeah. Um, And it just like a full circle. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just so special to then kind of grow into a teaching role. I mean, I'm no, you know, I'm really a home cook. I've trained in restaurants, but I'm very much home cook that's how I identify Uh and so you know I wasn't teaching people like anything crazy and I'm a terrible baker so I wasn't teaching them any of those things Uh but just to feel like I was playing some part and giving people kids the confidence was
0: really special yeah do you think about returning
1: I do when I'm having a lot of trouble with my writing um which is basically all the time when did you
0: first know that writing about food was a thing I think
1: I first, I mean, I grew up in a household of cooks. Both of my parents and my older brother um, were really into cooking. And so I always knew that like cookbooks were a Mm -hmm. thing, uh, of course.
0: Because they were in your house. Because they were
1: in our house. It was a big book, Uh you know, a bookworm house. So I knew that cookbooks were a thing. But I don't quite remember when I realized that writing about food um, in a context, you know, not so attached to actually cooking it, mm-hmm. um, that that was a thing until I really wrote my book because I did that so young that I actually hadn't yet given myself this context of like, oh, you're writing a book that's, you know, kind of like Laurie Colwyn's books mm-hmm. or that's, you know, kind of a little bit like, you know, X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It wasn't really like that. I just, I wanted to be expressing myself Outside of the yeah. kitchen in a way that I never had. And your book. Yeah. So, how old were you? I was 16. Yeah. So I think, old. Or 17 when so I started. It, I what know. took you so long? I think I oh missed my, my peak. <laughs> I know. I think my peak has long since disappeared into the past. <laughs> I mean, soft peak. Yeah. A soft, soft peak. peak. Soft peak.
0: <laughs> what, for someone who hasn't had the joy of picking up your book, can
1: you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. So, it's called Flavors of Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, and I call it a cookbook because that's what people understand most easily, but it's not really a cookbook. Um, it's 20 chapters and each of the chapters is a profile accompanied by a recipe, um, that tells the story of a home cook in Oakland. Um, and the home cooks in the book were mm -hmm. just people you knew or people you wanted to know or what was was the
0: sort of means of connection
1: it was a mixture and so at first the first few interviews we did uh, we being me and the photographer Anya Mm -hmm. um were just kind of like friends of friends you know through the grapevine we'd heard Mm -hmm. that they were fantastic cooks fantastic bakers um and so they were all home cooks and it was really just at first about you know finding anyone who would let us interview them and bring these big hunky you know cameras into their Mm -hmm. house um and we'd never done anything like this before. And so we were just trying to find people who knew us well enough to kind of vouch that we weren't going to like mm-hmm. steal their silverware and book, <laughs> um, which is like a real thing that could happen. Um, Did you steal any silverware during the course we of? <laughs> stole no silverware. Okay. I've, on the yeah, record. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> um, on the record. And so the first few people were like that. But then after we got, you know, a friend of a friend who made like sure. a really good borscht yeah. or like those kinds of people. We sort of like reevaluated our goals with the book, and we realized that being in such a diverse city where you know, I think a hundred and something odd languages are spoken, mm-hmm. um, just this you know enormous reach of cultures and languages and cuisines mm-hmm. and flavors that we needed to do a better job. You know, we knew this by like profile three, that we needed to do a better job of reaching across um you know, all these yeah. different kind of delineations. And you knew this at age 16. Yeah. Working on
0: a book. What, is it because you were in Oakland, like sort of born and raised in the East Bay and sort of exposed to so many different cultures? Like, what do you think made you aware of that at profile number three?
1: Like, was there a certain moment or it was just kind of the yeah. atmosphere? I think it was because I could look at my friends mm-hmm. um, and see that, you know, if the first two or three people we'd interviewed were, you know, they were all straight or they were Uh all white, they were all men. I mean, actually, it ended up being mostly women. But, you know, to kind of see those themes already, Uh and then to look at my friend group, um, my family, my, you know, school pictures, like, and to just have it be very clearly imprinted in my mind that that's not what any portion of Oakland looks like. Um, Not that there isn't kind of a certain kind of segregation throughout neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. but the city as a whole is so diverse. Mm -hmm. And so it was just really clear. It didn't take a lot of um, thought to realize that we kind of needed to do a better job of representing these people. And then we started reaching out um, in ways- And I'm sure once you had a couple and you could show
0: people or talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, and
1: some people got it and I think sometimes it was hard to explain. There were a few people who didn't understand like why we would be interested. Um, in their stories, especially because they were home cooks, they were like, oh, we're not celebrity chefs. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything in particular to offer. And so a lot of my work was just convincing people that, well, actually, I don't care that much about celebrity chefs. That's not really where mm-hmm. my interests lie. And, you know, the stories that you have, how you got to this city, because a lot of the people were immigrants, mm-hmm. um, sometimes migrating from other parts of the country, but a lot coming um, as refugees, because mm-hmm. Oakland has always sort of been set up you know, at least maybe not now, just as the country as it is. But in the past, yeah. has been set up as a place that really welcomes a lot of different refugee communities, and so I think a lot of those people. There was really the work of just convincing them that like their stories were so much more significant or so much more interesting than a lot of the mess that was on like mm-hmm. you know mainstream sure. TV or in these publications.
0: Something I'm so struck by is that you said you know, in going into your cookbook at such a young age, like it was a way to express yourself. Mm. And your cookbook um, is not about you. It's about, you know, all of these other home cooks. And it's something that I see in your current work and really admire that, I mean, you write about other people and you write so, like, thoroughly and thoughtfully about them. And I feel like you don't kind of center yourself in any of it and you don't... um, insert yourself into these stories, which I think is pretty unusual in food writing in general, and especially for someone so young. Um, mm. And maybe I'm just generalizing against millennials. Are you a millennial? I think I'm Gen Z. Oh, my gosh. But you could, yeah, oh my gosh. off the record. Uh. <laughs> off
1: the record. <laughs>
0: so what? how do you feel that profiling other people, telling other people's stories, um, you know, shining a light mm. on others you feel that that expresses you?
1: I do. Yeah. How so? That's such a good question. I think, I think that's changed Mm. since I started doing this work. I mean, I've only been, you know, beyond doing the cookbook, I've only been doing this kind of work. Um, This kind of work being like real kind of profiles Mm -hmm. of cooks and food people for maybe a year and a half. Um, But even in that time, I think that uh, at first it really had to do with, um, my sexual identity mm. and the reason it felt so much like telling these stories even if I wasn't part of the story was so personal is because right as I was becoming comfortable in myself and in queerness mm-hmm. I was having this opportunity to interview all these fascinating queer people mm-hmm. in food um, who just kind of represented a kind of expression that i wasn't yet comfortable mm. making myself mm-hmm. so even as i wrote these first few articles i would not have been comfortable you know publicly coming out or telling my own story in yeah. this way but you know um like liz alpern mm-hmm. Preeti me mm-hmm. um so many other people i mean devon francis mm-hmm. like these stories i've told um it's true like they're really not about me and i'm not there's a sense in which I'm not a really voicey writer. I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, throwing myself into these yeah. stories. But, you know, there there's a way in which they're self-serving because they allow me to hear how other people have become not just comfortable with themselves, but how they've created these lives around yeah. being truly and wholly themselves. I mean, that for me, and that's changed. You know, now I don't so specifically look for the stories of queer people, but I'm always looking for these stories that, you know, they're not about me and they don't necessarily have anything to do with me, but I can understand them in a way that makes me a better person. And
0: That's so interesting. And it's like, it sounds like you're in kind of connecting with people in this way where you're interviewing them, writing about them. I mean, it helps you kind of connect with yeah. yourself and like ask your own self questions, even if it's not happening on the page.
1: Right. And I think also, you know, I don't know how much this has to do with it, but Since I'm, you know, I'm only technically halfway through college, Mm -hmm. there's a part of me that also if I'm taking a break from school or if I'm spending all of this time writing instead of being in a class Mm -hmm. or doing that kind of of learning, it feels like this is an opportunity to learn in a way that a classroom never offered me um, because it's so much more personal and it's so much more about connecting with like one person, sitting with them. And sharing their story in a respectful way is just like, that's not something you do through an essay yeah. on, you know, queer theory, yeah. which is something I was telling you earlier yeah. that I was interested in, but there just wasn't that kind of connection. And so for me, this is also like, I might not be getting credits for it. You know, it's not an academic mm-hmm. pursuit, but I'm just becoming a smarter person.
0: Well, and you're writing pieces about queer theory, even if they're not true. for a grade yeah. or for Yeah, the first credit. one was, actually. You're getting life credit. Hey, and you're getting paid, right? Hey, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You have a lot of rigor in your work. It seems. It seems you're very um, kind of determined, and you do things really thoroughly. Like you interview more people than you need to for certain pieces, or you know, you uh, transcribe your own interviews, like all that kind of stuff. Where does that um, sense of just
1: real kind of hard work come from? Uh, it's probably anxiety. Like yeah. at the end of the day, I think a lot of it's because I'm so anxious uh-huh. about a story, and I'm so conscious that if I don't tell someone's story in the right way, you know, it makes me anxious even just kind of uh-huh. thinking about sure. it. That yeah. like, even if it's sort of a silly story or a fun light story, I think that the stakes are always really mm-hmm. high because it might be the only profile someone writes mm-hmm. of someone else you know like this might be this person's one shot to kind of get into this audience's Mm -hmm. view um and so i'm always just trying to find new ways to do that work i do interview usually extra people for stories because you know i don't have unlimited perspective and there are a lot of people i'm not there are a lot of places i haven't lived um, a lot of struggles i haven't had and so if i'm telling the story of someone who has lived that life Mm -hmm. um, and has gone through these things, I think it would be um, really lazy to not call on those extra perspectives because otherwise I'm just going to miss. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm going to miss something undoubtedly, you know, always, because there's just so many angles. But I think it's important in doing this work to like not take kind of the quick path out because, you know, then you make a little more money per hour or per word, you know, if you're kind of, like done, done, done. Everything sure. has to be finished, but you're gonna miss something. Yeah.
0: Big. Well, I mean, thinking about how you approach your work and then the results of it, it just it gives me hope because it just it feels like you care, and it's nice to know that. Kind of this sort of younger generation of people writing about food really care about what they're doing. So, or you care. Not I they. definitely care. Yeah, yeah. I definitely. Care. And that really counts for something. I Thank really you. think it does. Um. So, we both share anxiety. We have hey. that in common. Um, another thing we have in common yeah. is, I would say, what's the right word? An affection for, um, a fondness uh, for
1: our Guy idol, Fieri. <laughs> Mr. Guy Fieri.
0: Can you tell me when you started watching Guy Fieri, what you watch, what you feel about him, just yeah, all wow. of your... Okay. I should start by saying mm-hmm. that a few years ago, so I really enjoy diners, drive-ins and dives. Um and a few years ago my mom asked me, she said, I heard that there was this popular person on T V and food. This this, I think it's a French chef named Guy (laughs) Foray. So I'll just start with that. Yeah. So yeah, let's Not quite as highbrow as your
1: mother had suspected. But that
0: says more about my mother than about Guy (laughs) Maybe so what how do you feel about him? When did he come into your life?
1: He's Guy Fieri is my guilty pleasure. You know, he's like the sort of thing that you don't put in your Instagram bio, but maybe he goes in your Tinder bio. (laughs) He's sort of like a dirty pleasure. Um, I think I first started watching his uh, Triple D, Mm -hmm. as we call it, it, as the super fans call it. That's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Um, I think I started watching it in high school just because um, I went to high school for a while in San Francisco, and so I would spend a lot of nights sleeping over at my friend's house. Um, and right as we were sort of getting ready for bed, we'd finished homework, whatever it was that kind of got us to like, you know, 1030 or 11 mm-hmm. p.m. That's right when his special was airing. Um, and I didn't have it. I don't have a TV at home. Um, so at first it was just that we would kind of be tuning in um, to s- sort of see what was on TV. And it was always Guy Fieri. Yeah, And At first, I totally didn't get him. I was like, he's so gross and kind of a little, like, greasy and maybe kind of offensive. Like, I'm not totally sure what's going on with his demeanor. Which is,
0: you could describe a lot of the
1: food that he's eating. (laughs) Kind of gross, a little greasy, maybe a little offensive. Yeah, a a (laughs) lot of what he does. Um, But the more I watched him, I developed this real, like, softness. Uh Uh-huh this real soft spot for Guy Fieri. Um, And I still don't know exactly why it is. You know, I've thought about it a lot since we became friends because I've never really met someone else who kind of loves him in the same way. Um, I think a big part of it, and you know, it sounds silly because like we do joke so much about him just being this totally over the top kind of ridiculous persona, you know, not even quite like a person. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of the restaurants that he's shining a light on um, are really not places that are getting that visibility otherwise. And, you know, totally like he's not always doing it in the most complicated, thoughtful way. You know, a lot of it's just him eating a burger and then being like, oh, I'd eat this off a of shoe. This is, you know, I'd eat this off of flip a flip-flop. Flop. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that's, uh, I love that. I've started using that one. But it still gives people a chance to tell at least a snippet of yeah. their story, um, which matters to me. And, and it, its I think it's really interesting to see him going all over the place. Um, you know, I've hit, heard mixed opinions about whether he's a nice person or, you know, how much time he actually spends on mm-hmm. set, you know, all these different things. And, you know, I don't really have that perspective. I've never met the guy. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> gi- the gi, rather. Um, but... I've just sort of fallen in love with this format of television where he's like going all these places that aren't, they're not exactly foreign, you know, he's not doing it for some like shock effect Mm -hmm. in the way that some food television does. It's really just like, you know, this is someone's grandfather's favorite burger joint Mm -hmm. or this is someone's, you know, favorite taco truck. And, you know, he doesn't he doesn't do it in sort of a fetishizing way he just goes and he shoves the food in his face and it gets all over his little bleached goatee and then he's on to the next place and it's like it's this format yeah that has sort of yeah drawn me in
0: yeah no i think the sort of formula of it all and the kind of repetition i mean it makes it very just sort of familiar and I think pretty like not surprising and kind of unoffensive and I stand by that I just think it's one of the most inclusive shows on mainstream television and yeah. that's what just impresses me so much. Um You wrote about it. Yeah, I you wrote about it for essay. Lucky Peach, you, yeah. but it's um it's no longer. So maybe I have to Yeah. revive it. or revive. And I think I don't I don't know so much if I I don't hate him. I don't know if I love him. I don't know him mm. personally at all. Have no
1: connection. I think Guy, sometimes if you, if you hear this, give us a call.
0: I think sometimes it's good not to meet your heroes. <laughs> mm, to that. But yeah. um, I just I love where that show goes and the amount of people who are watching it and the food um, that's being shared and shared mm-hmm. in a way. Just as you said, that it's not you know some kind of like trying to trick you into you know some shock value thing or something like right. that. So I enjoy it for that reason. Do you watch any of the other shows? Grocery games um, or any of that stuff? I don't, he has I a don't, lot of shows. I don't, I don't like really, him in yeah. any other context, yeah, yeah, to yeah. be
1: honest. I mean, I find him otherwise just like annoying and he's sort of like <laughs> someone yelling in your ear when you're like trying yeah. to watch a movie on the plane or something. Yeah. Um, but no, I really don't. I mean, you know, otherwise I sort of stuck to my Anthony Bourdain television, uh-huh. um, you know, shows that were a little more complicated. Yeah, but serious. Triple D yeah. did it for me.
0: yeah. No, triple D. If, if you were, you know, boarding an airplane mm. and, you know, you're putting on your little headphones, you're ready for your flight, and all of a sudden Guy
1: Fieri sits down next to you. Oh, my God.
0: What would you say? What would you ask him? Would well, you say
1: anything? So, okay. So, first I have to say that I'm a very anxious... Fl- I'm a very anxious everything, uh-huh. but that includes flying. Um, and so it's one of the only times that I medicate for my anxiety. Mm. So, um, by the time Guy sat next to me... I'd be very loopy. <laughs> um, and at first I'd probably wonder if I had really overdone it uh-huh. um, and whether Guy was actually there. <laughs> but I think...
0: There's an episode of 30 Rock where <laughs> she imagines she's sitting next to Oprah.
1: Yeah, it's that, a great episode. That would I be feel my like Oprah moment. Your, yeah. That's my Oprah <laughs> moment. So I might just ignore him because I'd be pretty sure um, it was a hallucination. But... That he's one of those people that I don't even know what I would have to say to him uh-huh. because just thank you just thank you <laughs> thank you guy but my last question
0: which is the question I most love to ask everyone I talk to is what was your favorite meal when you were growing up mm. don't overthink it first thing that comes to mind
1: so I think probably my favorite thing growing up was my dad made lasagna um, and he is not he's not much of a recipe mm-hmm. cook. He very much just kind of cooks whatever he mm-hmm. wants to make. Um, and so I absolutely loved my dad's lasagna. It was always changing. So it wasn't so much a f- familiarity thing because one day it was this cheese, the next it was that cheese. Um, the sauce would change, but it was, he always made it for my birthday and special occasions. And then I loved uh, my mom's zucchini bread and it was very sweet. It was just Perfect. And so if I could eat those two things together. Yeah. Really cozy. Yeah.
0: Sounds so good. I'm a cozy guy. Yeah. I want to be cozy. A cozy guy. Yeah. I love it. A cozy guy. (laughs) (laughs) Cozy And just a quick word about Great Jones who helped make this episode possible. Great tools are just like great ingredients. They make you want to get in the kitchen and enjoy your time there. Since Great Jones sent along one of their enameled cast iron large pots, which they call the Duchess, I haven't taken it off my stove. First of all, it looks great, and second, it's just so versatile. I cover dry beans with water, bring the whole thing to a boil, cover the pot, and then tuck the whole Duchess in my oven at like 275 for a few hours, and the beans come out perfectly. I've made popcorn in it, and it cooks so evenly. I've even used the duchess to cook down three whole bunches of greens that I've chopped and cooked down with a bunch of garlic and oil. Thanks, Great Jones, for making my day-to-day cooking feel a lot more inspired. And thank you for supporting Keep Calm and Cook On. Want to check out their wares? Just head over to greatjonesgoods.com. For $25 off of any purchase on greatjonesgoods.com, use the code POTCAST. That's P-O-T-C-A-S-T. And now for some listeners questions. If you have a question for me, you can just send me a DM on Instagram at Tertian, T-U-R-S-H-E-N. That's my last name and my Instagram handle, which is very convenient. Or you can drop an email to keep calm and cook on podcast at gmail.com. One word, no punctuation. That's keep calm and cook on podcast at gmail.com. And Elizart was willing to stay for a little longer today and ask the listeners questions. So take it away.
1: Okay, here we go. So our first question is from at susan.allaboutthecurry, the best Instagram handle I've seen in a long time. And Susan wants to know, what can she do with leftover roast chicken?
0: I love this question because I love roast chicken and I love leftovers. Uh, You can do so much. I actually did a list at the end of my first cookbook, Small Victories, all these ideas for things to do with leftover roast chicken. And I'll share a few of my favorite ideas just off the top of my head. One is to shred all that meat and um, use it to make enchiladas. I love enchiladas. I actually did a recipe in my newest book now and again for these roasted tomato and chicken enchiladas. So you can use it for that. Um, You basically just roast tomatoes, puree them with a little bit of sour cream, and cilantro and then you mix that with the uh, roasted chicken that you've kind of shredded. Wrap it in corn tortillas and uh, bake it with more of that sauce and cheese. They're so good. Uh, so comforting. Another idea is one that reminds me of one of my favorite people who is Jodi Williams uh, who runs Bouvette and Via Carota with uh, Rita Sodi, her wife. And Jodi does this beautiful salad that's basically shredded roasted chicken on top of like bib lettuce and boiled uh, potatoes and green beans with like a very assertive mustard dressing and you can do the chicken cold or you can warm it up. I kind of like the contrast of temperature. I love that. I would eat that for lunch like every day. And my last idea is also another kind of shred the meat (laughs) moment and then mix it with um, just some chopped up cilantro, a little fish sauce, maybe like a drop or two of sesame oil. You could put some crushed peanuts um, and serve that either with kind of sliced cucumbers mixed up into to it or kind of next to some sliced cucumbers and have kind of this like really sort of slightly kind of Vietnamese leaning kind of roast chicken salad, really light and fresh and crunchy. Uh, so those are a few ideas.
1: Yeah. We love a shredded meat moment. So, <laughs> so this question is from Cato McVeigh. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and Cato wants to know, how many knives do I actually need?
0: Actually need. I believe... Every home cook needs three knives and nothing more. And to me, those are a paring knife, um, a chef's knife, and a serrated knife. And I think with those three, you can do anything. And honestly, if you don't have one of those three, you'll still be okay. As long as you have a sharp knife, you'll be all right. But I think a paring knife lets you do kind of small tasks like, you know, peeling garlic cloves or, um, you know, trimming the ends off of things and, you know, cutting up an apple, you know, all these little things, cutting up... You know, a piece of cheese when people are coming over, that kind of thing. A chef's knife lets you do pretty much everything. Chop onions, cut up a roasted chicken. And a serrated knife uh, just makes slicing bread very easy. Also, so essential for tomatoes. I cut all my tomatoes with a serrated knife. Uh, and yeah, all those other knives that come in the big block and stuff, I think are pretty unnecessary. That's how I
1: feel. I'm, I'm with you. So this is from Macon in Germany. And this was sent in uh, by email as well. And Makin says, um, A number of times I have wondered, what does a chef or a cook do when they have have had a cold and they have to work? Or allergies, they also wonder. Uh, They can't properly season and taste anything. I sometimes go for weeks with a stuffy nose and always wonder if cooks just have an amazing immune system or a trick. I actually wonder this, too, is I've been stuffy for, like, a month. You've
0: been stuffy. I can't taste anything. I think it's such an interesting question. Um, and it reminds me of, uh, what's his name in Chicago? Grant Ackett's. because oh, he, he, Yeah, when taste. he went through cancer, um, but still showed up to work. And I think that um, story is very inspiring because, from what I remember from reading about it, was, you know, he really relied on the people around him. And I think when you kind of lose one sense, uh, you can, you know, really kind of delegate and and have people you trust. But I think it also kind of heightens your other senses, which was sort of really interesting. But yeah, I would say also, you know, doing things if you're in a restaurant kitchen, like wearing a mask or something, you know, trying to keep your cold from getting to other people is important. Uh, But it also reminds me of a funny story when my grandfather once this was many years ago, got sick, and he, for a little bit, lost his taste buds. He had, like, a really bad flu, and my grandmother decided that would be a great way to use up all of her, like, expired canned goods, <laughs> oh because God. he couldn't taste them. <laughs> um, but to me, that's the time when you get to really, like, sort of turn up the volume on things, and, like, when I'm sick or stuffy, you know, I want, like, I want tons of chili, I want tons of ginger, I want things that are going to kind of break through that and make me just feel a little bit more kind of awake and and, um, you know, on the road to getting better. So, yeah, I don't know if there's a total trick, but I think one thing that can be really helpful is uh, having someone around you who you trust.
1: Yeah, or people who don't care if your cooking yeah, is terrible. Exactly. <laughs> Our last question is from Mommy Green Thumbs, which is another fantastic Instagram handle. And Mommy Green Thumbs asks, I'm vegetarian. What should I cook when non-vegetarian guests come to visit?
0: I think make a vegetarian meal. I don't think that you need to kind of make, you know, any type of meat or anything like that just because your guest might not also be vegetarian. I think everyone can be satisfied by a meal that doesn't have animal protein in it. Um, I would suggest making something like you could have one main big thing, something like, you know, an eggplant Parmesan or something like that. Which is delicious and I haven't had in way too long. So good. Um, Or you can do, I like a kind of a, a vegetarian meal that has kind of a variety of things where you're not trying to replace like one big, you know, roast with like, you know, a big centerpiece like having you know like a grain salad a thing of you know a bean dish a, a really beautiful green salad another vegetable just have like a bunch of dishes um that type of cooking always kind kind of reminds me of like autolanky style food where you just have like a beautiful mixture of different salads and grains and you know you can have this really wonderful satisfying meal that doesn't have meat in it but yeah i would make them whatever you would enjoy um with the kind of trust that they'll enjoy it too what do you think
1: Well, I grew up in a vegetarian household. Oh, we didn't talk about that. Yeah, both of my parents are vegetarian and have been since I was born. Um, So that's totally my answer, too, is that, you know, meat eaters can go a night without eating meat and they won't keel over. You don't need that meat protein.
0: Thanks for asking the questions. Thanks for loving me. Appreciate it. And if you have a question you'd like to hear me answer on a show, um, again, you can just DM me on Instagram. My handle is tertian or drop an email to keep calm and cook on podcast at gmail.com. I'm actually going to answer one more timely listener question that came my way via email from a listener named Emily. She asked about some of my favorite Passover desserts to make as Passover begins at the end of this week. Emily added that her family doesn't exclude dairy, which made me happy to hear since my favorite Passover dessert, the one I included in the Passover menu in my cookbook now and again, is something I call lazy semifredo. To make it, you just fold together freshly whipped cream with softened, store-bought ice cream and freeze the whole thing in a loaf pan, cut it into slices, and serve with crushed berries or any fruit. It's so simple to make. I also love a classic flourless chocolate cake. And there's one of those in Now and Again too that I served with soft whipped cream, there's a theme here, <laughs> and cherry jam. It's an easy riff on a black forest cake. The entire Passover menu is really easy to make and also includes my favorite ever matzo ball recipe. It's the one I spoke about on episode 12 with Liz Alpern, where you toast the matzo meal in the chicken fat first, and it gives the matzo balls so much extra flavor. I also shared the haroset quinoa recipe from the Passover menu with Great Jones, who has supported Keep Calm and Cook On, and you'll find the link to the recipe in the show notes. And be sure to listen to the end to hear the discount code for Great Jones. And before I head off, a quick shout-out to The Trevor Project, an organization that's meaningful to both Elazar and myself. The Trevor Project is the leading national organization providing crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning youth. Any young person in crisis, feeling suicidal, or in need of a safe and judgment-free place to talk can call one of their trained counselors 24-7 on their hotline at 1-866-488-7386 or they can communicate via text by texting the word START to 678-678. Visit thetrevorproject.org for more about the organization. I've also included the link in the show notes, along with a link to an interview between queer comic Cameron Esposito and Amit Paley, the CEO of The Trevor Project, to learn more. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Keep Calm and Cook On. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And if you have a few extra seconds, rate and review the show. It really makes a difference to help others find it. And let someone know about the show. Post about it on social media. Download an episode on your mom's phone. Text a friend. Each new listener is a new member of the community. For more about me and my work and my cookbooks, head over to juliatertian.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at tertian. And thanks again to Great Jones for making this episode possible. Great Jones makes beautiful, thoughtfully designed cookware. To find out more about Great Jones, head over to greatjonesgoods.com. For $25 off of any purchase on greatjonesgoods.com, use the code POPCAST. That's P-O-T-C-A-S-T. I'm Julia Tertian, and I'll catch you next time. Until then, take care.